This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio and Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we are bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y radio. Today we'll be celebrating Poetry Month by talking with Paul Hoover, editor of the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. Then PW Poetry Reviews editor Craig Teicher will join us to talk about some intriguing books in the poetry field. But first, here's a sneak peek at next. Uh, but first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So I found a couple of interesting things yeah. on the hardcover list. Um, at number four, th- these are all debuting this week. Okay. So this is uh, the books that have just come out. Um, number four is Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. We gave this a starred review. Oh, um, it's an interesting novel, uh, which we say opens twice, first in Germany in 1930 with an English woman taking a shot at Hitler, mm-hmm. and then in England in 1910 when a baby arrives stillborn. And then it opens again, still in 1910, still in England, but this time the baby lives. So this is an an interesting sort of experimental novel structure. It's why it's called Life After Life. Um, Over over the course of this book, she uh, lives and dies and lives again repeatedly. So uh, it it feels, you know, initially like like it's just sort of an author's trick. Yes, an author has the power of life and death over their characters. Uh, But over... Over the course of the book, it really becomes a, a clear metaphor for war mm-hmm. and about how war can cast this shadow of death over whole cities, whole nations. Oh, wonderful. And she's the author of Started Early and Took My Dog, that uh, uh, published about four or five years ago, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, That's right. And uh, so we, we found that this was a really interesting alternate history mm-hmm. exploration of war in Europe. Oh, fantastic. So it's definitely one to. And I'm sorry, do, uh, what, where is that debuting? Uh, it it's it came out from uh, on the hardcover list at number four, so oh, on fantastic. our on our main list. Wow, great! What have you got today? Uh, well, you know, just talking about fiction, is, this is at number three. This is uh, Paulo Coelho. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, the title of his manuscript found in Accra. And, you know, this is one that's on the bestseller list, and you had mentioned with the uh, Kate Atkinson, we gave that a, a star to. This one, we, we uh, PW, didn't, um, didn't review it very favorably. We said, a self-help sheen hangs over this book by the internationally uh, best-selling author of The Alchemist. Uh, many readers might, might remember him from The Alchemist, which reads much more like a collection of bland aphorisms than a work of fiction. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit tough, but, but here it is, you know, uh, uh, number three. By respected author Paulo Coelho. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to jump over to the uh, nonfiction list. And uh, do you remember we had a little discussion last week? We we had something of a bet going. Uh, on. Yes, yes, there yes. A, exactly. a, there, yeah. there are no actual stakes here. There's no gambling. <laughs> only <laughs> right, right. only reputations <laughs> right. are on the line. Yeah. 
Uh, so I, I said that there were going to be two books uh, j- looking at uh, last week's uh, on-sale calendar mm-hmm. that after a week in the bookstores would land on our bestseller list. And I'm right. going to talk to no- the first one. And I did give myself a wide margin for error. I gave myself within the top 15. Right. And, and I think with this one, I would have been, I would have been lucky if I would have said – I would have been thrilled if I would have said the top 10. But this is Gwyneth Paltrow's. It's all good, delicious, easy recipes that will make you look good and feel great. Mm-hmm. Debuting at number two on the nonfiction on list? the nonfiction list well yes. done mark thank you, you thank you it. i did i did and this is re- and so here she returns with her uh from her second best-selling uh book my father's daughter and here she uh comes back with recipes that she eats when she wants to lose weight look good or feel more energetic mm-hmm. so number two how about yeah. that other book ah Doc, uh, dwight gooden uh memoir that i said was going to land on number 15 well it's not on the uh, charts at all this week. and Not and at all? No, not at all. It's completely absent from the charts. So why is that? Well, here's how, what happened. How could you have gotten how so wrong? How could I have gotten so wrong? I mean, <laughs> the, not a blip, nothing. Well, uh, we had it listed in our uh, pub, uh, on our calendar as having pub this week. Well, the publisher... Uh, moved it to June. So uh, ah. so I, I'm going to stand by this book. Let's talk in June. I think it will be on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm still going to hold by. I'm going to hedge my bets and say somewhere in the top 15. So the publisher changed the publication date. What are some reasons a publisher might do that? Uh, a publisher might do it for uh, either a news event, maybe say they wanted to uh, tie it in with something. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is going to be the you know the height of baseball season, right. um, uh, rather than right now, which is the beginning. So this is kind of mid-summer. Uh, in summer, there are fewer books coming out, uh, more of a chance for a book like this, or like any book, to, to make it on the uh, bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could have been uh, delays in production. There could have been certain photos that, well, this usually wouldn't hold up a book, but certain things that might hold up the publication of a book. But for the most part, when publishers move it, uh, it's, it's to, to, to tie it in with a, perhaps a more you know, timely uh, either subject or, or newsworthy item. Right. I mean, I certainly expect that a book like that would have a lot of pictures in it, for example. So you might have a whole lot of work to do to get the rights for some of those photos, make sure that all the captions are correct. There's, sure. There's a lot of work that goes. Into yeah, a book exactly. Like that. And even though it's a you know it's a, uh, a memoir by Dwight Gooden written with with someone else, uh, he doesn't necessarily own the rights to those photos. Right. Because uh, he's not there taking pictures himself of himself. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, he's, he still has to talk to the people at Tops to get yeah, right. to, to reproduce his baseball card. There you card. go. Right. There you go. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So. Well, well, we'll check back in June. I'm going to hold you to this. I'm not going to let you forget. No, 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 no. I know you won't. I know top, you won't. Top 15. <laughs> so so I, I've got a couple more books. Uh, um, uh, so number seven, we have uh, Deborah Perry uh, Pichone, uh, Secrets of Silicon Valley, What Everyone Else Can Learn from the Innovation Capital of the World. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a book that we reviewed well. Uh, and here we say she quickly assimilated, raising capital and launching three successful startups in six years. This is after having moved from D.C. to Silicon Valley. She was working uh, for the, uh, she was a uh, worked for Congress uh, uh, as a lobbyist uh, in D.C. and then moved to Silicon Valley and found the um, the life, the work, very different. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, and uh, here she offers a bird's eye view of one of the most exceptional uh, economic ecosystems in the U.S. Um, so that, that, that debuted at number seven. 
And looking over here, we have one more book that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, one that we uh, we gave a star to. This is Mary Roach, Gulp, ah, Adventures yes. on the uh, uh, Elementary Canal. I've been hearing lots of interesting things about this book. Yes. Yeah, it looks great. I mean, and she, she was great and stiff. And uh, once again, we say she goes boldly into the fields of strange science. In the case of her newest, some may hesitate to follow because it's all about the human digestive system. And it's really as gross as someone might expect. So. I absolutely would. <laughs> so. But th this, is a, this is a great gift for the teenage boy on your list. Yes. <laughs> and in fact, in fact, Rose, we say that in our review. Well. For adventurous kids, this is, this is a must-have as well as doctors but uh, <laughs> who, who want to have a little bit of uh, fun, uh, perhaps, uh, in this fascinating and sometimes ghastly. All right. So, well, anyway. def definitely one to, to keep an eye out for. I can, I can see maybe gulp theme parties coming up again around Halloween. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Paul Hoover is going to tell us all about postmodern American poetry because it's April, and April is Poetry Month. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. So if you can hear sirens behind us, that's why. Today we've got Paul Hoover on the line. He just edited the second edition of Postmodern American Poetry for Norton. Thanks for joining us, Paul. I'm pleased to be here. Very, very glad to have you here. Um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the term, what does postmodern mean in the poetry field? It's the same as in architecture and in the other arts. It um, is a post-World War II phenomenon that probably has a good deal to do with the rise of global capital. Mm -hmm. uh, that is of big businesses, international businesses, uh, the advancement in media, uh, the movement, for example, from radio in the time of Amiri Baraka and Allen Ginsberg uh, as a major medium uh, to the computer uh, today and cybernetic uh, approaches. No, that's interesting. I, I suppose I hadn't thought about how technology changes poetry. Can you expand a little bit on that? Uh, I think it's a significant difference. Uh, writing itself, uh, way back in history, in the, Gu the Gutenberg Revolution, uh, changed the way we communicate in poetry. Uh, instead of being exclusively in oral poetics, we moved to print. And mm -hmm. print subtly changes everything. Everyone wants to write very well, to be correct. Right. So the Civil War soldiers, you know, in the famous Civil War series on TV, they wrote so beautifully of their experiences uh, on the front. And then, of course, uh, an oral poetics returns in a, in a way with radio and TV. Uh, the idea of uh, performance poetry uh, is probably brought to the front uh, by that development. But at the same time, history remembers what is written. So there's a dilemma uh, going forward. Gutenberg still wins in a certain way. And, of course, radio and TV win. And everything has its position and all must be shared in the same field. Right. But, I mean, I don't think of people as going on the radio or going on television reciting poetry very often. I definitely think of it as a written medium. That's right. Uh, well, that's partly because the commodity value of poetry is low. Mm -hmm. uh, if you live in a country where commodity value or spiritual value of poetry is high, for example, in Vietnam, I think it still happens. It's built into the culture, a great love of poetry. Interesting. Um, so you get the idea. Um, mm -hmm. it, uh, poetry trades beautifully from 
one mouth to one ear and from one mind to another mind. But it's hard for it to communicate on the broadest level. Uh, in your introduction, you refer to language poetry and even post-language poetry. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, a group arose in the 1970s simultaneously on the East Coast and West Coast, figures like Charles Bernstein on the East Coast and Lynn Higinian on the West. And uh, they uh, resurrected the uh, influence of Gertrude Stein, and Gertrude Stein uh, wrote a very playful kind of writing. She says, I never repeat, but everyone thinks of her writing as being full of repetition. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> kind of funny. She referred right. to it as the continuous present. It's possible that we live in a continuous present as exists on uh, media, that our cultural memory and historical memory is a little short. So she, Stein may have been really prophetic in that way. Uh, but at any rate, they are, wanted to emphasize the written record, uh, language as material substance. You know, a word is a word is a word, as a rose is a rose is a rose. And so that poetry might be uh, written as writing rather than as communication from mouth to ear. So it was a difficult poetry. It was a theory-driven poetry. And it became the mark of its day. All and these developments is... are very surprising. I mean, uh, the 1990s was the moment of the triumph of language poetry. Now the language poets are in their 60s. Mm. And uh, the younger poets uh, want to return to lyric uh, quite often. You know, that's an aspect of poetry that's hard to lose because it's so beautiful. Even though language poets were opposed to, uh, essentially to lyric as beauty. I know it sounds strange, sure. but that that's the case. No, that that makes sense. It, it sounds like some abstract art. Uh, like, you know, for example, if if you go and, and look at at Mark Rothko paintings, they're not necessarily about what's beautiful, uh, but but it's still a, unquestionably art. Yeah, or uh, I can stand in front of a mother well and just be in awe, mm-hmm. you right. know, uh, because of the lyrical curves mm-hmm. and uh, strong uh, kind of expressionist emphasis. Um, so I think there is beauty uh, in the abstract, and there's even a mode called the abstract lyric, which is actually people like Anne Lauterbach, Marjorie Wellish, some of Michael Palmer, uh, where it, it's somewhat like Wallace Stevens' poetry. It speaks with great intelligence about the world. It's a philosophizing poetry, and, um, and ultimately it's lyric. So there are all kinds of uh, and stripes of poetry in this anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, including the lyric. So, post-language lyric. Uh, I was really relieved to see that occur. You know, as a, someone following this literature, because my own commitment had been to lyric. Um, I watched with awe and amazement as language theory uh, called for something else. Yeah. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with poet and editor Paul Hoover about his anthology of postmodern American poetry, now in its second edition. Uh, there are quite a few new and young writers in this book alongside old guard poets. How did you mm-hmm. decide who, who to include? There are certain people who are lodged so safely in the, what we call the canon. You couldn't do without an Allen Ginsberg. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't right. want to remove Denise Levertov. 
uh, Frank O'Hara, for example. Right. Uh, so they're safe. And uh, then uh, post-1975, uh, post-1989, uh, certain markers. Uh, so the post-1989 period, uh, those are truly the young people uh, who emerged in that period. And uh, I have to make certain educated guesses based on how strong they are now and the kind of energy they have seem to have fo- going forward. Well, I'll include them uh, and uh, hope that, you know, that I'm right. Uh, nobody's right 100% of the time. <laughs> But uh, you can see certain tendencies. Well, in in this book, I, I noticed that there are quite a few, like you said, young writers, and and you, you seem to have selected them. You know, whenever the the select process was done, I'd say you know a year ago, who are now seemingly coming into their own. So it, it sounds like you've you've <laughs> on many of them yeah. kind of hit it right. Can you talk about a couple of those poets? Yeah, I, I'd like to actually draw uh, uh, do a, two things at the same time, if it's okay. I'd like to read a very short poem by Frank O'Hara, and I'd like to follow it by a poem by a young poet, Graham Faust, uh, who's working essentially in the same mode, but he's not influenced by O'Hara. And what what this is, is our period's emphasis on the everyday, and also on issues of popular culture. So this is called Poem, Lana Turner Has Collapsed. I was trotting along, and suddenly it started raining and snowing, and you said it was hailing, but hailing hits you on the head hard, so it was really snowing and raining, and I was in such a hurry to meet you, but the traffic was acting exactly like the sky, and suddenly I see a headline, Lana Turner has collapsed. There is no snow in Hollywood. There is no rain in California. I have been to lots of parties and acted perfectly disgraceful. But I never actually collapsed. Oh, Lana Turner, we love you. Get up. <laughs> that was Frank that was Frank O'Hara, 1964. Yeah. And here's Graham Faust, uh, born 1970, mm. born six years after that poem was published. Uh, and the poem was called 1984, but it was published 2007. Okay. Look at the sky. Go back inside. Cocaine makes its way to Wisconsin. The TV's thick with burial, hilarious with seed, and while the moon, my mind, and the real world stay home, I will walk, 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 unkilled around a New Year's clumsy gallows. Anything's impossible. I'm not you. Here's to music to be in the movies, too. That's Graham Faust. So, <laughs> and, can you, and can you tell us the similarities to what we're hearing? Okay. Or well, the differences, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Graham Faust is darker and more self-consciously lyrical than Frank O'Hara. Frank O'Hara uh, made a scandal in his day by writing so uh, much on the surface. Like, I'm walking down the street and I see a, a newspaper headline, Lana Turner, the movie star of that time, mm-hmm. has collapsed. And O'Hara was considered to be perhaps a little under the threshold of what a poem was. Like, how can that be poetry? It's really just notes of the everyday. Right. Or, right. or it just, yeah, it's just a sentence with some funny line breaks in it. Right. Exactly. Uh, but it has its own charm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has an easy charm. 
And ultimately, Frank O'Hara won the day with that, and the everyday mode um, became so popular. And uh, there's a whole school of poetry built around it uh, called the New York School, and the Beats and many other poets, uh, of course, were influenced by it. So ultimately, the whole body of poetry shifted in that direction. Uh, it became acceptable to write about what was near to you uh, and almost immediate in your life. So that kind of note-taking, observational-style cocaine makes its way to Wisconsin. Right? Uh, here's to music to be in the movies, too. Uh, that sort of links uh, Graham Faust and Frank O'Hara without Faust being directly influenced or knowing that he's influenced. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with poet and editor Paul Hoover about his uh, second edition of the Postmodern American Poetry for uh, Norton. And, Paul, do hip-hop artists and other lyricists interact with the poetry world, or, or do they develop independently, do you think? Uh, well, we uh, there's performance poetry. Mm-hmm. Per- performance poetry leans toward theater rather than toward poetry on the published page. Uh, one Chicago slam, I used to live in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, one Chicago slam star uh, started out in theater. She went to a poetry slam and she realized, oh, I can do that. She went home and wrote a poem, her first poem, went back and won the slam the next week. Wow. And she said, the secret is, you have to be able to, to do it all and be thoroughly absorbed in one take. You don't say, well, let me read that again. Like you might want to read the Graham Faust poem again, but you might not want to read the Frank O'Hara again. You got it the first time. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, the script or, or the page and the stage, I guess you would say. That division is an interesting one in our time. Um, and at the same time, uh, uh, so Edwin Torres is somebody, for example, in the anthology who has a strong performance and, uh, interest, or Anne Waldman, uh, Amiri Baraka, Allen mm-hmm. Ginsberg originally. They're mm-hmm. classics sure. now. That's right. But uh, something else arose uh, called proceduralism. It's not that complicated. Uh, you make a simple rule that uh, you have to obey. So in this poem that I'm going to read, it's short, by Christian Book. Uh, it's spelled B-O-K with an umlaut, uh, two dots over the O. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Vowels, and the whole poem only contains the letters V, O, W, E, L, and S. Oh, wow. That's the, <laughs> that's the procedure. Right. And it's a lyrical poem. I think it's a, a beautiful poem. Vowels, loveless vessels, we vow solo love, we see love solve loss, else we see love so woe, selves we woo, we lose, losses we levy, we owe, we sell loose vows, so we love less well, so low, so level, Wolves evolve. That's wow. almost a perfect. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful wow. poem. <laughs> it, it's amazing how the limitations it seems of you know, like enforcing limitations can lead to an expansiveness. Yes, that's exactly right. And so that's the formalist strategy. 
uh, a, a formalist uh, brings the form first and then lets the content fall generally mm. into it, into the container. And it, it works marvelously well. I, I've used that in classes. Uh, give a sharp constraint, uh, you know, a limit, and then the students invent beautifully around the limit. Um, so uh, the, the nice thing about the, the proceduralism is that the rules are simple. Mm-hmm. It's not like the sonnet where you have five rules, you know, iambic pentameter, all of that. It has right. to rhyme a certain way. This is easy to remember. I'll just use V O W E L N S. Yeah. And uh I should say that Christian Book is a best-selling author in England. Um as and, a poet? As a poet and wow. the edition of his book um you it's just hard to say Unoya E U N O I A which is the shortest word in English that contains all the vowels. Hmm. Uh, It was published by Coach House Press in Toronto, and my edition, which I bought seven years ago, was the 24th printing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The only other better seller I can think of in poetry is Lawrence Ferlinghetti's uh, Coney Island of the Mind, which has sold millions. Mm -hmm. And what about Ginsburg's Howell? I was going to say. Oh, and Howell sold millions, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with poet and editor Paul Hoover, who's introducing us to some fascinating examples of postmodern American poetry. Um, tell us a little bit about what's changed in the poetry world that led you to create a new edition of this anthology. When did the first edition come out? 1994. Okay, um, so that's been quite a while. Yeah, that was 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a full generation, maybe a little more even. Mm-hmm. And so much happens. Shocking uh, amount of things happen. Uh, certain poets uh, fade a little bit, and others come forward. Um, someone who seemed so important in an earlier period might seem less so. Some hold their ground perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, I, I fell into this anthology business by accident when I commented to. Uh, an editor of New Directions, that uh, there should be an anthology just of experimental poetry. We'll call uh, it experimental, mm-hmm. whatever, the forward-looking stuff, the stuff that takes risks. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those situations where you said, someone should do this, and they said, congratulations, you're someone. Well, it's the way it worked out. He he took me next door at a, a convention, I mean, literally to the next table, mm-hmm. and introduced me to a vice president of W.W. W. Norton, which is the leading publisher. Mm-hmm. of anthologies, and uh, he thought I had a proposal. And he said, well, we can't, we can't do that. It's too much money, but send me a proposal anyway. Hmm. And I sent it with a table of contents, and off we went. And uh, it was, a, it was a, imp- a very important book because uh, it had been over 30 years since such a book had been published in the United States. That was 1994. Wow. Mm-hmm. And now a generation passed, and it's time to do it again. And um, why? how could I justify uh, a new anthology? I said, um, I said to the editors, uh, the book is uh, losing its cultural um, referent. Like, the, the, the world is changing, and our book has not changed. 
Right. <laughs> I mean, who knows who Lana it, Turner it, is now? That's right. That's, that's right. Uh, yeah. Actually, you'd be surprised at how many students know that, but um, but it's true. It's time to renew the ima- the whole base and the whole reference base as well. Mm-hmm. So um, new schools had emerged in the last ten years. Uh, one is conceptualism. Uh, uh, here's an example of conceptualist work. Um, Kenneth Goldsmith's uh, book-length uh, uh, poem, we'll call it a poem, is an entire edition of the New York Times, uh, typed up by hand by him. From the beginning, uh, all the news that's fit to print, 15 cents, all of that, every word, including all the ads. And so none of the words are his. Right. But the, it's but all the found form poetry. or the, the context is his. Right. So it's all based on a, a single concept, just right. like uh, vowels is based on a single procedure. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of shocking because it challenges our idea of originality. Now, mm-hmm. you have all these uh, styles of, of poetry in this collection. Uh, and, and a lot of it, as you said, is experimental in your in your book, Postmodern American mm-hmm. Poetry. Now, I wanted to ask you, I mean, this seems like a wonderful, a wonderful textbook for students of poetry, students of literature. But do you feel this anthology is accessible to the casual reader or is it meant to be more of an academic work? Uh, some of it, some of it can be difficult, but uh, I think probably everything I've read so far is perfectly accessible. Mm. Um, and so... You know, it has lots and lots of lyric, lyrical poems as well. You know, uh, what happens is that a poet like Robert Creeley comes along, and uh, his he's a lyric poet, a uh, beautiful lyric poet, but he had used an unusual syntax. He used a short, very short line, and so there was a kind of jolt and bounce with each line break. Uh, the rule of hesitation. And so at first he seemed experimental. <laughs> and a lot of, that's often the case here. Uh, new styles often wind up being just as accessible. Mm-hmm. But there's something that's blocking us re- at first because it's, it has an approach that we don't recognize. It has a filter on it that we don't recognize. Um, uh, so... For example, here's a, a poem by, uh, it's short, by Denise Levertov. Paul, I wish we had time for that, but unfortunately we're coming oh, up okay. to the, the end of our segment. I would love to hear another poem, but I, uh, unfortunately we can't. Uh, but thank you so much for everything that you've already recited for us, because it's definitely... Oh, you're, you're quite welcome, and uh, I, I hope that uh, uh, this book will be of use uh, to every reader, because there. There are all kinds of poetry in it, from the lyrical to the highly abstract. Mm-hmm. I can tell uh, just from talking with you uh, right now. So thank you so much. We've been talking with Paul Hoover, and you can find the second edition of Postmodern American Poetry in stores right now. Paul, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a little bit of a look into the world of postmodern poetry. Oh, thank you so much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, continuing our poetry theme, PW Poetry Reviews editor Craig Teicher will join us to talk about some interesting new poetry books. So stay tuned. 
Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. So every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, Poetry Reviews editor Craig Teicher is here with us to discuss some intriguing new poetry titles. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Thank you for having me. So this is Poetry uh, Awareness Month. Poetry Awareness. It's just National Poetry Month. Oh, my gosh. Don't, okay. You don't, you don't have to be aware of it. It's <laughs> just there. A relatively small number of people are aware of it. But hopefully in larger numbers because of this month. So tell us what's happening this month. What kind of events are going on? Well, uh, you know, basically for, for poets in America, like it's as if we're kind of off duty the other 11 months of the year. <laughs> And uh, all the books, or uh, like literally 50% of the poetry books that are published uh, are published this month, and, you know, a ton of readings. Really? I mean, so, so the publishers are saying, this is, this is when we're going to publish this book. Yes. Wow. Uh, it's a, it's a, a strange idea, I think. Uh, but I think they do it because they feel that uh, more poetry books get promoted mm-hmm. in April than otherwise. Um, but... Yeah, there, there are tons of readings. I mean, I, I can't really list them all, but I would just look at, uh, if you look at the Academy of American Poets, uh, Poetry Foundation, mm-hmm. and uh, Poetry Society of America, they're all doing stuff. Right. Well, what 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 have you been seeing this past year? I mean, you you uh, cover the poetry, uh, not just in April, but uh, month in, month out. <laughs> and um, what, what have you been seeing this year compared to last year? Well, uh you know, every year there are, uh, you know, these big uh, kind of retrospective volumes where some famous poet gets their, uh, you know, sort of looks back at their whole career and selects poems from all their other books. So uh, in PW, we just profiled Charles Simic, who has a new uh, new and selected uh, out just about now. Uh, and so that's a big, exciting thing. Um, Tell us a little bit about him. Who is he? Why should we be interested for those of us who are completely ignorant of what's going on in, in poetry these days well he uh he's probably one of the more famous poets writing uh in in english right now uh he uh he was born in uh uh the former yugoslavia came here as a teenager and so writes with a kind of european sensibility but in a way that only someone who had spent most of their life in America could write. Um, he's, I think he's turning 75 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes these kind of weird, surreal poems, uh, you know, uh, it's like little poems sort of like about a fork and hmm. he sort of turns the fork into a bird in this very kind of slippery way. Um, and, uh, you know, they're a little bit funny and kind of creepy. Um, and then in the background of that is his sort of childhood in, in Yugoslavia in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this kind of haunted, people are kind of bad vibe going through the whole thing. Hmm. And, and what other poets do you have that, that, you are, that are on your radar? Radar. 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 Um, on the, uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about a book by Frank Bedart. Uh, which is, it's about, it's about to come out. I mean, it'll probably start showing up in stores any minute now. Uh, it's called Metaphysical Dog. And uh, Bedart is um, really one of our, our great sort of living writers right now. He was uh, very close friends with Robert Lowell. Uh, and, I mean, he was sort of a, uh, he sort of worked as an assistant to Lowell. And then uh, he's his executor. Uh, anyway, he's, I mean, it's, it's, it's this amazing book where he, uh, kind of looks back on his whole, 
writing life and talks about his older poems in his new poems. Um, and, uh, it just, it's just a very, um, it's just the most uh, intense and kind of wonderful book. Um, when we have these re- retrospectives, I feel like, you know, for an author of novels, for example, a retrospective is a little harder to, to come by in that sense. And since you're working in these big chunks, it's hard to watch somebody's style evolve. Is there more of a sense of, of, of smaller changes and shifts in a poet's style over the course of their lives? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, what's fun about these, these kinds of, uh, kind of books that look back that you can see that, uh, you know, most poetry books are about 70 pages long and poets tend to publish them maybe every three years when they're in their, in their kind of writing prime. Um, so someone like Simic has published something like 20 books. Um, you know, so yeah, you see that their obsessions sort of slowly change and the books tend not to be that different from book to book. But if you look at, you know, a book from 30 years ago versus a book from two years ago, you see like, wow, this guy's really thinking about different things or maybe they're not, which is also sort of an interesting thing to notice that somebody's just kind of plodding along. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be, I mean, I don't know, you know, you have those library of America volumes where you have like four novels in one massive book, but yeah, that would be an amazing big fat book for our collected novels. <laughs> it would. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Poetry Reviews editor Craig Teicher, who's got some interesting stuff for us for Poetry Month. And I'm sure there's interesting stuff going on the rest of the year, too, despite what you said. Yeah, but, but tell us what else is coming out that people can find in stores now or will be able to find soon. So the other book that I'm very excited about is by a poet named Mary Shebist, who is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years old. Um, she's, uh, so, and this is her second book. It took her about 10 years to write. She's a very careful writer, but, um, it's a book, uh, she's a poet who thinks a little bit about religion, but in a kind of, uh, um, an off kilter way. She's not, I mean, if she has faith, she has as much doubt. Um, but so it's a book that, that thinks a lot about God and a lot about mm-hmm. things like that. But, um, there's this amazing poem in it. Uh, it's a concrete poem, meaning it's a poem where the way it's presented on the page is um, sort of important to how you read it. And it's, um, I forget what it's called, but uh, it's, 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 it's this amazing poem where it's sort of like spokes of a wheel. Uh, the, the lines are like spokes of a wheel. And uh, kind of in the middle, she sort of means for you to catch a glimpse of God in this weird mm. empty hmm. space in the middle. And uh, whether or not you have any kind of religious life. It's, it's one of the more convincing kind of spiritual experiences that I've had on paper anyhow. And we just were talking to Paul Hoover uh, before the uh, editor of the postmodern American poetry uh, anthology. And we talked a little bit about uh, maybe movements in poetry, like the language poetry, uh, poetry. Are, are there, what, what are the current movements? Are there any, uh, he had mentioned that there's been, you know, recently a backlash to language poetry for more lyricism. And are you, are you seeing that more? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think the interesting thing about the postmodern American, uh, poetry anthology is that you do see that there's this actually very long tradition of, uh, experimental poetry, uh, that's still very much, um, alive. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's, there's two very broad movements. I mean, there's, there's kind of that movement. And then on the other side, there's people who want poems about, you know, sort of accessible poems about recognizable things that happen to, uh, familiar seeming people. 
Um, I mean, that's a very, very broad generalization, but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, right now we're, we're, we're in a time where there's a little bit of everything. There's poetry that's very focused on the kind of text as an object. There's poetry about, you know, my mother was crazy and there's, uh, you know, kind of all kinds of other little things. It sounds like um, in in an odd way that might almost mirror the progressive and conservative political divide, you know, people who want to do things the way they've always been done and people who want to try something that's new and different and strange. And yeah, I mean, similarly, I mean, I kind of think it just swings back and forth where every decade or so the the hip thing is to be a kind of experimental poet and then 10 years later the hip thing is to be you know somebody who's writing about family in very uh accessible ways and it just kind of goes back and forth Mm -hmm. um and and what do you see are these books mainly geared toward adults are these is there is there poetry for kids out there that's um presented as poetry because Mark and I were talking a little bit about this last week that kids grow up hearing a lot of poetry and songs and then suddenly it becomes this adult thing and so I was wondering what what bridges that gap um well yeah i mean there's there's a ton of poetry written uh specifically for kids um i you know i'm not as aware of what's sort of going on in that in that world, but that, that comes out all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the weird thing that, that happens with poetry is that it goes from being something, yeah, maybe you read, you know, you read Shel Silverstein as a kid or you read, you know, someone like that. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, high school kids kind of run up against poetry in high school and they're taught to think about it like it's a puzzle. Mm. Um, and then they hate it because they can't solve the puzzle. And Often like literature in general in, in, in schools sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and so then they, they never read poetry again, um, which I think is a, a big shame because uh, it's not really a puzzle. It's not really meant to be solved. Um, so, you know, I think the best kids' poetry anthologies are ones where uh, sort of adult poems are... are gathered in a way that kids can access them, you know, so, you know, there are all kinds of great poems that weren't specifically written for kids that, um, you know, put in the right context. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Poetry Reviews Editor Craig Teicher about poetry, oh, National Poetry Month. <laughs> Let me do that again. Uh, uh, I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Poetry Reviews Editor Craig Teicher about poems and poetry in the month of April. Now, Craig, I'm going to turn the focus on you. You are also a uh, poet, published poet. You've just had your fourth Third. 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 See, I'm, third. I'm, I'm ahead of myself. I'm anticipating your fourth book. What's it like being a poet and an editor of poetry at a magazine? Well, uh, it's a lot like just being an editor of poetry. Um, no, I don't know. It's, um, you know, it's, uh, poetry is a very, very small community. Uh, like I think a lot of the literary communities in, in the U S I mean, we sort of everybody either knows each other or knows, uh, you know, they, they know somebody who's close friends with everybody. Uh, so, you know, on, on one level, I'm seeing a lot of books all the time by, uh, you know, by people who are, um, you know, if, if not friends, people that, you know, I'm connected to somehow just through, through the community. Um, but I try as a practitioner to keep that as separate as I can from, you know, actually writing. Um, and I try to forget that I know way too much about how poetry is published because it's a grim, it's a grim reality. It's a, <laughs> but it must be exciting for you to see, I mean, to see pretty much every book of poems, uh, come through the office and onto your desk. I mean, yeah, you yeah. probably have 
the best view of, of, of probably anyone in the field. Well, it's, you know, I mean, and, and, and it's certainly, this is a great time to be a reader of poetry because there's more of it being published than ever. And is more, that true? Really? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, because there are so many MFA programs and small right. presses and because right. so much of poetry publishing is done uh, by nonprofits, it's, it's possible to just, and, and because publishing is cheaper than ever because you can do small press mm-hmm. things and small print runs much more cheaply. Um, there's a lot more good writing being published in, in, you know, nicely made books. Um, so it is, it is really fun to have access to all of that and to see kind of how, how rich the publishing scene is. When we were talking with Paul Hoover, we were talking about, uh, uh, poets like, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, Allen Ginsberg and, and in their, who in their day, would would sell massive numbers of books. I mean, and I know the numbers for poetry, let alone any literature, uh, are not the numbers they used to be. Uh, do you see anyone, any poets nowadays who are who are who might be a, a, you know a household name or or be able to sell those kinds of copies? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the woman who won the Pulitzer last year, Tracy K. Smith. Uh, right. You know, her sales are you know, uh, about equal to an average novel mm. sales, uh, you know, like a, a good novel yeah, sales. I mean, great. you know, someone like uh, Billy Collins sells, you know, hundreds of thousands of books. Uh, he, he was a poet laureate, right? Mm-hmm. At one point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I mean, and he was, he was sort of the most, you know, he really got out there and did stuff. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, W.S. Merwin, I mean, Simic will probably sell uh, a lot of books. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but, most poetry books sell somewhere between 500 and 2,000. And if you get over 1,000, your publisher is very happy. Oh. Um, which is, you know, humbling, but also kind of manageable. Sure. So nobody's really making a living writing poetry these days, or very few people. Yeah, I mean, you could probably count them on two hands. Um, who and, and, you know, those people who are making a living writing poetry have some kind of a weird deal where they're, <laughs> they're you know, they actually get paid for their books for some reason. Um, but no, it's, it's not really, I mean, most poets make their living teaching or doing something totally unrelated. Right. I'm Rose Fox and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Poetry Reviews editor, Craig Teicher about poetry for National Poetry Month. So for people who wanted to observe National Poetry Month by maybe overcoming that high school conditioning against poetry and, and discovering it as adults for the first time, where would you recommend that they start? The internet. Um, well, it's all out there for free, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so, yeah, there are these, these handful of really big uh, nonprofit organizations that do a lot of poetry things all the time. Uh, those being uh, the Academy of American Poets, which is at poets.org, the Poetry Society, which is at poetrysociety.org, uh, and the Poetry Foundation, which is at poetryfoundation.org, and also Poets House, which I think is poetshouse.org. These are very strange URLs. Uh, Big nonprofit groups. Yeah. Um, so all of those websites have uh, all kinds of poems on them. They also have events calendars. They also have, um, you know, a lot of multimedia. Um, there are some great uh, multimedia resources on the web where you can hear all kinds of poets reading. Um, so I would start there and then see what is going on uh, in, uh, you know, nearby and mm-hmm. go see a reading or two. Yeah. So there, there are going to be poetry reading events probably all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just have to go and look for them. Mm-hmm. And um, what about you know, for people who are thinking of you know, poetry books as gifts, or is there is there anything that's kind of out there that's very broadly accessible 
right now or or that's a that's a good place to start in the book world hmm. well uh, i didn't mean this to be a trick question no 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 it's <laughs> you know it's that thing where you know you put your hand in a puddle full of fish a pond full of fish and they all swim away right um, oh good image uh it's poetry <laughs> that's how it is um, wow uh, off the top of his head ladies and yeah. gentlemen you want to go look at a pond full of fish for poetry that's <laughs> where to go this poem will be in craig's fourth <laughs> book um let's see uh well i mean the postmodern anthology is a good place if you want experimental poems but that's not uh broadly accessible necessarily um, is David Lehman, is he coming oh, out with oh, a book oh, of that's uh, where, that's what, poems? Okay. Actually, yes. Coming out this month uh, is um, the uh, 25th anniversary celebratory Best mm-hmm. of the Best American Poetry Anthology. So really? every year there's this anthology, The Best American Poetry, where a right. famous poet picks 75 poems that were published in magazines that previous year. This year, uh, coming out this month, um, is the 25th anniversary book where uh, Robert Pinsky, who's another very famous mm-hmm. poet, has picked poems from the other 25 volumes. Wow. Um, and so it's a, it's, it, it actually is a good place to look for um, poems of many different kinds right. yeah, from, ma- um, you know, writers of all different uh, time periods of the last, you know, 40 or so years. Because, right. you know, you have people like Ginsburg in there from before he died and then you have very new poets um and yeah david lehman is the series editor of that right. series right oh that would be a good place yeah nice definitely. place to start great yeah and it sounds like there would be a little something for everyone in yeah. there so if you don't really know what you're into yet it's a good place to to start and a good reminder also that that it's okay to say i like this poem but i don't like that poem and yeah. i like this style but i don't like that style and 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 that it's even okay to say i like this poem but i don't understand it which right. I think is what is what high school messes up for many of us. That we think we have to, you know, be able to paraphrase a poem sure, or something sure. to feel like we can like it. What does it right. mean? Yeah, well, when, it doesn't when maybe, have to mean anything. Yeah, exactly. No. Sometimes just reading a poem, you just can you just internalize whatever it, you know whatever it is you're feeling at the time. You don't have to 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 explicate what's, yeah, what's going yeah. on between the lines, yeah. as it were. I actually that. You know, because I handle science fiction, fantasy, and yeah. horror, I think a lot about different genres of fiction. And it, you know, sometimes there are there are genres that are about how they make you think. Like science fiction is definitely one of those. There's often a lot of puzzle solving the way there is in mysteries, and there's a lot about how does this science work, and let's extrapolate into the future. But then there's something like horror, which is about how it makes you feel. It's it's like comedy. It mm-hmm. makes you right, laugh, right. and horror makes you shiver. And right. and you know, it doesn't. There's there's a sort of interesting ongoing conversation about um, the difference between a book that's that's technically well written and a book that's very evocative. And there are some books that are that really grab you, even though from a technical standpoint the writing isn't great. Or you know afterwards you're like there was no plot. What mm-hmm. did I just read? But it doesn't matter because it it evoked those feelings for you that sensation. So it's interesting to look at poetry through the same lens. That sometimes you're just going to be in it for how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or to, you know, or just for what it, you know, what it makes you think of, even if you don't know what that means. You know, I don't know. All right. Well, Craig, thank you so much, and happy Poetry Month. Yes, happy Poetry Month to you too. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.